Black Friday's coming up, y'all, and that shit is stressful. Waiting in line outside of the Best Buy at 2am, the only electronic store left in town because corporate consolidation and unfettered capitalistic greed of companies like Scamazon have forced us to patronize massive corporations like this just to feel something again. You're waiting in line just for the hopes of snagging a PlayStation 5 while the bubby behind you breathes so heavily that you can feel the morning breath plaster the back of your neck like old musty paint, while the smell of his grisly wintergreen long-chewed dip assaults your sinuses to the point you want to go postal on a motherfucker. We get it. We've been there, and we got you, because you don't have to go through this stressful event alone. Get yourself some cornbread hemp CBD to help calm those nerves and hold the line while you fight your fellow brethren for the elusive Sony console. Cornbread hemp CBD is flower only full spectrum so you get only the best stuff that you put in your body. It's better than all those other fly by night CBD companies. We know who they are. They recently rolled out some sleepy time gummies too. For those of you like me who lie awake at night pondering the existential nature of our existence and can't get to sleep because you're scared of the idea that space is ever expanding, that we may never ever reach the next closest galaxy of Alpha Centauri, and is there a god? Is there a god? We don't know, but what we do know is you can use our promo code BANJO, B-A-N-J-O, to get 25% off your order at checkout by going to cornbreadhemp.com. Check them out now and don't get caught behind a bubby in the Best Buy line. Harvest has filed for bankruptcy protection. The company says the filing will allow production of tomatoes and other crops to continue at three of its four Kentucky indoor farms. Those greenhouses are in Richmond, Moorhead, and Somerset. The company's Berea farm will transition to its distributor. App Harvest was once worth nearly $4 billion following its 2021 stock market debut, but the company has struggled to produce crops at the rate it projected and has lost more than $300 million over the last two years. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Apod Latcha. My name is Chuck Korn. I'm joined directly in front of me in 752 miles due north is my co-host, Callie Pruitt. We have a great show for you today. We're talking about how the city of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, took be gay, do crimes way too literally, the downfall of the ag startup app Harvest in Kentucky, and we'll be talking to the filmmakers of a new documentary based in West Virginia called Oh Pioneer. It's really great. You're not going to want to miss it. But first... We got to discuss Sheriff Joe. This is a perfect contrast. Let's start with an update on Sheriff Joe Mansion. The uh probably the closest thing that West Virginia has ever come to a US president is a man cock teasing a run for the highest office <laughs> in the land. I want to read these two article headlines, just the headlines for right now. One was two days ago. All right, you ready? Two days ago, NBC News. Senator Joe Manchin says he absolutely would consider a presidential run. One day ago, from the Associated Press, Senator Joe Manchin says Donald Trump would destroy U.S. democracy if he wins a second term as president. (laughs) (laughs) Those two things don't mix, Joe. I'm sorry to say. Yikes. (laughs) Um... I I love the response of just absolutely. Um, 
because that the the way that the question was phrased was like the perfect bite of the apple for Joe Manchin. You know, the reporter couldn't have given him like a better a better question. <laughs> no, he really couldn't. And it's it's so interesting to listen to him talk because you just don't know where he's going to go from day in, day out. Like, his whole thing is like, well, Joe Biden is, is lurched too far to the left, which I would very much love to hear what leftist policies Joe Biden has pursued <laughs> in his three and a half years in office. Re- very interested yeah, in learning about that. Yeah, a highlighter. We would like to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> Was it the Inflation Reduction Act that you helped author and voted for? Mm. Was it that? Was was it the stimulus bill that you also did? Uh, was it the COVID checks that you got a free national park out of? I don't it know. It must be the bipartisan I, uh, effort to get George Santos out of office. Oh, that's it. Yeah, no. I, I am... <laughs> Speaking of him, I'm curious what uh which OnlyFans creator he was giving campaign money to. And I've seen a lot of people like a lot of people have been kind of taking their guesses, and there have been some really funny ones. Well, our friend Drew Morgan from the Well Read Trio has has claimed that George Santos was subscribing to him. Mm. I do believe it was a joke, (laughs) but uh, I would love for that to have been real. Yeah, that would be pretty good. That would have, oh man, what a boost to, to Drew's career if that would have happened. <laughs> Material forever. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, so, okay. Joe Manchin teasing a run here. I'm still, I'm still very skeptical that that's actually what he ends up doing. I just, I don't, unless like his whole like calculus of politics has changed or he is more delusional than he ever has been. I just, I don't see a world where he has any data that backs up his run as being viable to win. And and I don't know why he'd run if he didn't think he could win. Yeah, I, I have not seen anything convincing on my end. And I know he just likes to stir the pot to stir the pot's sake and that he will wait to the 11th hour for any decision. Um... And I don't want that in a president. I think that's a very good case to for him to not run. <laughs> he's so um, dramatic. He's so dramatic. And he'll want, like, he will play to the news cycles better than anybody. Like, and he will never give a straight answer on anything. It, it just, I, I don't want a ghosty, um, flaky president. <laughs> But I just, I, you don't know what one day to the next is going to look like. I mean, that sounds a lot like Donald Trump. I don't want him as president either. <laughs> well, and let me just, he also, this is again where like, you just never know what the hell this guy is thinking. Because in that same AP article where he's talking about maybe teasing out a run, he's like, quote, this is a direct quote, quote, I've done everything I can to try to change the political dysfunction and political divisions that we have in Washington. And I've come to the conclusion it can't be done here in Washington. Which if you were taking someone at their word, that would mean that he wasn't going to run for president. Right. <laughs> unless in some warped up Joe Manchin world, the White House is no longer in Washington, D.C. But He has um, moved it to the Greenbrier. 
Well, the only flaw in that is I see that Joe Manchin would have to buy the Greenbrier from Jim Justice first because he's not going to share in that glory with him. But who knows? Maybe he will. Maybe he will have his little palace. You know, yeah. I mean, Jim Justice, if he doesn't, if he's not a senator, which he will be, let's just be honest. Um, But if if he's not, he likes the limelight. Like both of these guys just really like to be out there strutting their stuff um in a very peacocky way there there is like such a the two of them are two little peas in a pod they really are and i don't think they realize that about each other but it is true (laughs) it is true anyway uh i guess we'll be following this it's always fun to play around with the speculation but i hope for the sake of this country that joe manchin doesn't run because i believe that he will be a spoiler and uh help Donald Trump get reelected, uh, which it's already not looking great. Yeah. So Joe Joe Biden is not not the spry and chipper 78-year-old that was running in 2020. Yeah. I My only pitch to Joe Manchin is this. If you become president, you only make, you know, just north of $400,000 a year, which is... Just not enough for you, Joe. Chump change. We we know it's not. So don't take that. You know, go be a lobbyist or something. Do your damage elsewhere. Don't do it in the public sphere. Yeah, normally the approach would be a lobbyist. I I, I mean, maybe he will be. I feel like he probably wants to go back to West Virginia, but he I'm he likes getting wine and dine at Cafe Milano. So who knows? He does. He does. Time will he, tell. He's the he's a scotch drinker at the Watergate for sure. I can see it now. Who knows what the hell he's going to do, but again, hopefully he doesn't get in. Anyway, I guess fortunately for him, he wasn't an investor in App Harvest. <laughs> but you know what? I do, and uh, let's just say correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but um, it could be. We'll it reveal. Could. If you don't already know who it is, we'll, we'll reveal it at the end. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about App Harvest. We're talking about that today because it's a shit show. We we mentioned it. It wasn't that long ago that we, we talked a little bit about App Harvest, but we're dedicating an episode to it today because, my God, it is worth it. It's such a boondoggle. I More to epic proportions that I had, until today, never had the slightest inkling of. Yeah, no, it's wild. It's terrible. Um, let's just say that uh, that that the story of the app harvest overseers making Spanish speakers clear the room and leave so that Mitch McConnell could give a speech is the least bad thing mentioned in this article that we're talking about. Yeah, and I I guarantee we won't make it to everything in that article cuz no. it's like it's it's it is a long form article. <laughs> and let me stress that. But it's got like worker exploitation, recovery and relapse on the job, tech bro investors and pesticide exposure and immigrant labor and politics and and like it's it is not so but so you guys. <laughs> It is it, it, very nutso in the butso for sure. <laughs> this is so. Let's get started. We let's do a little background refresher. We talked about it before. This is we. I base this heavily off of this article that came out in Grist g r i s t dot org. I will link to it in the notes. This is an incredibly well reported article. Uh, Austin Gaffney is who published the story. So 
App Harvest, let's tell the story. It started out with a guy named Jonathan Webb who founded it in 2018. So he's a Kentucky native, so, you know, positive sign there to begin with. Entrepreneur returned home with the promise of building a dozen high-tech hydroponic indoor farms, not weed, across eastern Kentucky and the surrounding region, growing tomatoes, cucumbers, berries, lettuce. Not only would he be piloting an advanced form of climate-resilient agriculture, he would be generating gainful blue-collar employment in some of the country's most economically distressed counties, where he argued that the coal industry's downfall led a void that could be filled by sustainable industry. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I I do think it sounds slightly familiar. Well, to be <laughs> fair, it is. Um, so the idea behind this was this thing. It's called controlled environmental or it's controlled environment agriculture CEA, which uh, basically it aims to reduce carbon emissions using greenhouse gases. That basically what it does is trying to use hydroponics to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases produced from farming because yeah. farming is is har- it ends up being harmful to the environment. It takes up a ton of space because of all the acreage you have to use to plant. So this is a way of trying to reduce both of those types of consumption. Um, as a concept, it's a great concept. Yeah, it's a um, nice idea. Yeah, execution, not great from App Harvest, <laughs> as you'll find out. Yeah. I'd also aim to reduce agricultural imports from Mexico, which will be important later, um, and producing it all in Kentucky, which, again, great thing. I would love to be able to produce our own food here. Um I want to talk about what the employees were sold on when they, because this sounded like a really great opportunity. So um, the employees that worked there, they, they were told $13, this is in 2018, at Parvis, told $13 an hour with productivity bonuses and track to internal promotions, 100% employer paid at health insurance premiums for employees and family, monthly box of farm fresh produce and stock options once the company went public. And a place like rural Kentucky is pretty damn good starting out. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Yeah. So, and lots of people had a lot of hope in this. They also planned to offer jobs to formerly incarcerated people who are in recovery from addiction. Uh, Also, such a great idea that I really like. Yeah, and that's, isolating that idea, it's a great idea. Nothing wrong with it. They did not execute well, but that's a great idea. Um, So this guy, Jonathan Webb, raised about $700 million for App Harvest, got fine coverage in major media outlets, and recruited high-profile people to join the company board, like Martha Stewart and that asshole that wrote Hillbilly Elegy. There it is. Yeah, so that's that's where the red flag starts to come (laughs) in. So this all sounds great in theory, except for the J.D. Vance part. Um, And there's a lot of hype around it, understandably so. And honestly, like, Look, I don't blame anybody for being optimistic about this. I, honestly, I I was when I first heard about it. Like it it sounded like it would have been a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think that this is the kind of diversification. I mean, this is the exact narrative that people in this region not only want to believe in, but think will actually actually be the solution to a lot of the problems. And so I think it, it had all of the hallmarks of a socially progressive, you know, kind of a, a economic driver in the community. And I, it's, it's, a, it's a story that, honestly, it, it was easy to say, that sounds great. Yeah, and it was easy to pitch to, to national media. I mean, like... Coming in, doing something good in Appalachia, something that's sustainable, climate conscious. I mean, 
that eat that kind of stuff up. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a quote from this article that I think beautifully sums it up, though. It was, quote, we were sold on this beautiful pipe dream, and it turned out to be a fucking nightmare. Yep. And ain't that the truth. So let's talk about this guy, Webb, real quick, this founder. Um, as we mentioned, he bought into this CEA thing big time. Uh, its proponents claims that farming needs to be become less climate dependent and land and reduce its land footprint. Uh, so the need arises and it has been done successfully in places like the Netherlands um, and other parts of Europe. So without going into too much detail, like Netherlands has been doing this for over half a century and lots of trial and error has gone into that. So they've kind of figured out the model. Well, America, not so much. And there's been several startups like app harvest that have failed to turn a profit due to labor costs and energy. Yeah. So, like any great entrepreneur or charter school founder, Johnny Webb quit his job and without any experience whatsoever, founded App Harvest. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, this is this is so, like, white knight just kind of, like, wanting to come in and save the poor people. And, yeah, um, I, I, at this point, you might start to feel bad for Johnny Webb because it sounds like he was trying to do a good thing for his community, but look, even if you have good (laughs) intentions, good intentions can lead to very bad results and And, uh, enormous bonuses. Well, (laughs) and enormous bonuses. Absolutely. So, you know, benefit somebody. Uh, I said, this is starting to sound like, um, like a charter school or something. Uh, which again, charter schools uh, can be some nuanced takes to that, but uh, there's there's a lot of bad things happening with many of them. One former employee mentioned that the interview process was unlike any she'd ever had. App Harvest attempted to sell her on its vision with overt enthusiasm, coupled with a lack of clarity on job duties. Sounds very yeah. familiar to me. Um, the same employee took the job because it felt like a great opportunity, especially after battling addiction. Okay, understandable. The training was also bizarre. It started with an orientation slash pep rally type event with loud music, cheering employees, and team building. Sounding very yeah. familiar to me. Mm-hmm. I've experienced this <laughs> in a previous job. It sounds very familiar. They watched a David Attenborough documentary for some reason, and the most and the actual process of farming tomatoes was very glossed over. You know, the actual role that they would no, be yeah, working. Yeah, and David is good. Uh, David is very good, but he can't. Yeah, no shade teach against him about propagating tomatoes or i bet he no, could but he no. hasn't yet and i'm assuming that documentary subject was not what it was <laughs> yeah no way most of the employees there apparently didn't know fuck all about farming tomatoes <laughs> and were never taught apparently again things are showing more red mm-hmm. flags we go down the road this is a good quote. They took people who had never done this before, threw them into a greenhouse, gave us minimal training on how to do it, and expected us to produce grade A tomatoes when all we'd done was backyard farming. That's so spot on to that. I mean, thinking about the wild differences between like hobby work and professional work in other industries. Like people think that farming is just putting a seed in the ground and watching it grow. And that is not what farming is. Like maybe that's how your garden works and you're happy if you get a dozen tomatoes in a season. But like the, the market, the farming and produce market 
like you have to produce from every single plant consistently. Otherwise you don't turn profits. And so this is like drawing that distinction between backyard farming and professional really, I think shows this just how fucked they were from the beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. My mama made some fire ass tomatoes, but like that doesn't mean that she can, you know, farm and produce industrial scale tomatoes to meet market demands week after yeah. week. That's not something that is just a natural thing to know. <laughs> no, no, it is not. No, it is not. And something that you may want to teach your employees if you're hiring them for that purpose. I Look, not a farmer, don't know a lot, but I do know how to not fuck things up yeah. entirely, and that would be a way to start. Uh, so... It wasn't just the lack of knowledge, as you'll find out, that was um, a problem. It was how they treated their employees. Shocker. So one former employee mentioned that she was hired on a strict 40-hour workweek basis with an opportunity for advancement, but was almost immediately told she needed to start working weekend overtime or she could lose her job. And they would couch the overtime needs in, in terms of shitty little memos that said things like, we need to keep our plants happy. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> They are weaponizing Instagram plant influencer verbiage against these I employees. I don't like it. As a plant person, no. plant people do not approve. I would not propagate Ooh, that. Love that. No. that was good. We yeah, need to just yeah. snip that right there before it goes any further. <laughs> just prune it That's back. That's right. Sorry, prune this it is back. just ripe for plant metaphors. Yeah, I wouldn't fiddle leaf. <laughs> Fig that around. All right, that's the extent of my knowledge. So greenhouse. So this is like greenhouses. Um, get really hot, as you can imagine. My grandma had a greenhouse, and that shit was hot. Yeah. Uh, Not not an easy working environment. No, God, no. Not for like you know forty plus hours a week. Uh, began reaching dangerous high temperatures during the summer. Employees began suffering dehydration, heat exhaustion, the heat index, and the Moorhead, Kentucky greenhouse could spike to 155 degrees. No, thank you. That is, in my opinion, too hot. I, you know, I think uh, that's an objective fact. <laughs> yeah. Too hot to work in. One worker called it, quote, an absolute grueling hell on earth. Accurate. Workers were only allowed to leave the greenhouse if the heat index reached 140. Okay. According to a worker who helped those suffering from heat exhaustion, another worker said thermometers were covered in gray trash bags or moved to poles where workers couldn't see a heat index, the medical assistant said, once peaked at 155. You know what I learned from having a baby is that scalding burns on on your tongue can happen, start to happen at 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Let that sink in. <laughs> they were working literally in scalding heat. So it's like pouring coffee all over you. Yeah. Cool. That sounds like a fucking nightmare. Yeah. They were right. Oh, man. I, again, I cannot imagine doing this. I'm so lucky to have the job that I have, Lord. Uh, one of, this is actually a really horrible story. One employee's worst memories of her birthday in June 2021 where she had to sweep shattered glass that fell from the greenhouse ceiling. The task triggered nightmares of glass panels that exploded and decapitated her, grow wires that electrocuted her, and tomato steaks that impaled her. So people are literally having post-traumatic stress from this. That's terrifying. Yeah, it's it's horrifying, and 
what what's even I don't want to say even worse, but what is a different kind of evil is the way that they you know used employees to promote what they were doing. Yeah, uh, they didn't. App Harvest didn't really pay much attention to complaints, but they used their employees to brag about their success. One person who was directly mentioned by name in the article, Aaron Mays, was initially taken with the job in the company. She applied to App Harvest from the Rowan County Detention Center in February 2021, where she was serving her 10th sentence for drug possession charges. And she felt like it's the perfect role for her. Um, and she was given that opportunity, which is really good. Mm-hmm. So she told her family and friends to buy stock in the company and was convinced it was the future for her region. Mm-hmm. Mays also met her now spouse on the job, and the two were often asked to speak to Greenhouse guests. Uh, quote, we were used as poster kids, Mays said. If there were photo ops or people that came in, I feel like they would start to use me or Leo, I'm assuming that's her husband, because we were big members of recovery in our community. We were outspoken and well-spoken. A oh, couple of months... That's yeah, it's heartbreaking. Horrible. A couple of months in, she relapsed on Suboxone. Her hiring packet said that she could go to treatment and keep her job, but HR told her that the job wasn't guaranteed to be waiting for her when she got back, and even if the job was available, she had to... She remembers that she was told she ha- wouldn't be eligible for six months if she went into recovery. It, which is just, it, it's That's, ridiculous. Yeah, and it's so antithetical to what they were trying, or what they were saying that they were promoting. Absolutely. It, it's, it's horrible. It runs against the actual best practices in recovery. It's awful. Well, and it forced her to make a decision that very likely negatively impacted her health. She decided she didn't want to lose her job, so she just tried to use over-the-counter pain relievers. And I'm a, They didn't go into detail about like how that worked out. I'm assuming not well if she was relapsing from Suboxone. Like, that's yeah. not easy. And the fact that they were sold on this bill of goods that turned out to be false is just, it's, it's criminal, and it's disgusting, and it just spits in the face of a region that has already been completely annihilated by large corporations. Yeah. Absolutely. This that part of the story really sent me. Yeah, because it, it's, it's taking people in their most vulnerable state. Yeah, I think that's that's like one of the worst things that companies can do to people is is hire vulnerable people and then abuse those vulnerable people further for their profits. A lot of these while companies bragging know about exactly, hiring them, right? They know exactly what they're doing. Like absolutely, they, th- this is not that it was lost on App Harvest. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> no. To assume that, I mean, we, we just heard that they they didn't even take complaints, so it's just awful. The whole thing. I'm sure that that was a big selling point to investors when we were talking about hiring recovering addicts. I'm positive, positive, it was. yeah. And I'm sure that that's what what caused them to pull out the. The, the checkbook and write an even bigger check. Absolutely. Shameful fucking shit. Well, thankfully, there is some justice happening. The company told investors in 2020 that productivity and high turnover at its Moorhead, County, Moorhead Kentucky greenhouse led to a $32 million net loss. So stockholders filed several lawsuits alleging securities fraud. Fair. By the end... Yeah, absolutely. By the end of 2021, App Harvest had earned only $9 million out of a projected $21 million in revenue. At the beginning of this year, 2023, the company's stock was less than a dollar after reaching a peak of $42 a share. That's, like, bottom the fuck out. Yeah. 
which is not good because so many of the employees were invested in it. Yeah. Workers who bought stock lost a tremendous amount of money. It's, it's disgusting. But don't worry because uh, some of the rich people got richer. Jeffrey Ubin, I don't know how to pronounce his name, former board member cashed out before the company publicly acknowledged their financial problems. He sold 4 million shares at around, I think, 17 bucks a share, made $50 million almost. So God knows if, I hope he's getting investigated by the SEC. If not, they hopefully should. Yeah. Uh, earlier this year, 2023, lenders demanded repayment of $182 million, which forced Webb out as CEO and led to App Harvest declaring bankruptcy. Oh, and to put icing on the cake, the bankruptcy filings revealed the company spent over $1.4 million on ag work replacement agencies that hired foreign nationals. So, so much for local jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, all of that added together is just, it feels like, you know, like when you flip over, you, you see like a really like pretty rock and then you flip it over and it's just got like ants all under it under it that's exactly what this feels like we're like oh this looks nice and they're like oh god shit no this is terrible and that's yep. how i feel um after reading all of this oh it's it's awful and you should feel that way because that's how i feel i it's i i'm glad that there's some justice happening but i feel like the employees that got wrong will probably never get you know just compensation or whatever you want to call it for maybe they will i hope they will i hope that they've got legal claims that they can file and at least like get some some restitution from this because this is i mean this is criminal like it, this is disgusting and it's taking advantage of a community that was already suffering greatly and making it worse but lining a few pockets along the way of people who didn't deserve to have their pockets lined. Yeah, absolutely. Do we know what's happened to what is Webb doing now? I don't know. I truthfully, I don't know. It's a good question. One of their board members is a fucking United States senator, though. Jeez, I bet I know so, who it is. I think you do. Sadly, that's all I know. Yeah, I mean, he was booted out in July of this year, so I'm not really sure what's happening. Yeah, I'd like him. to know if he got a payout or anything. I because my guess would be that he did. I mean, I'm sure. It's just it's really shameful. Like it truly is. I'm really fucking disgusted by it all. And I don't know. I, I like this the thing that makes me so mad is they sold so many people on a promise uh they're doing something good and made it believable and people believe them and they just turned the punch bowl shat it right back in their face yeah and i mean I it was it's... all it was all like a messaging campaign it was good it was an easy narrative for people to buy into it was easy for mitch mcconnell to say look at what i brought here without looking through the, the paperwork or without really seeing a business plan it was easy for investors to say here is our charity investment <laughs> like here is our risk investment and look at how great we're turning out these people like we're helping these poor people it was so easy for all of these rich powerful politically connected people to point at app harvest and say here's our good deed when it was so it was just skin deep there was nothing about app harvest that was 
worth more than just what those folks said. Um, and, and the people who really got fucked in all of this were the workers because, and that breaks my heart because I know what it's like to work for either someone in my case, a candidate or something that you really believe in and that you really think is going to help. And then to be so let down by that, especially when you sacrifice, these folks sacrifice their bodies and their time to try and make this dream work because they said, if you just keep putting in that work to make our plants happy, Jesus Christ, then, then we'll turn them profit. And you have to be able to sell that load of crap, but they were able to do that. And that's how, I mean, I get that. I get what it's like. You have to take a risk and believe in something. And for that risk to not pay off, is just, it's gutting. You're absolutely right. And not only that, it's just like bad faith. Yeah. Like there's some bad faith happening in this. Like it may have started out as good intentions. I don't know. I don't want to say whether or not it did, but it's just bad faith happening in this. I mean, the operations, you can't operate a company like this and expect anything good to happen. And it's it's a perfect example of another way of extracting resources from that region and spitting it back in their face. And it's shameful and disgusting. And I mean, I'm glad that I'm very thankful for this reporting because like this is a long, long article, but a very good, very thorough one. And it really just lays bare everything about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for for breaking it down like that. That was really helpful, Chuck. And and I I mean, this is such a an important issue. I would love to I would love to hear from our listeners too. If you guys have experience um, with App Harvest, or if you you know if you have something to say, like let us know because this is. This is a huge deal that and we have to keep talking about it until the, until there's some sort of conclusion to this story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and credit again to Austin Gaffney who who did this article. I I just pulled directly from it. Uh, also, before we get off this topic, I did want to mention the Mitch McConnell piece, which is that uh, he was set to appear at the greenhouse, I think, in Moorhead, Kentucky, to praise App Harvest as like a whole PR event. But everyone who spoke Spanish was quite literally told to leave by leadership at the greenhouse, lest they be seen. Uh, why, you may ask. Among other things, Cocaine Mitch was set to talk about how he, quote, liked the idea of taking the tomato market away from the Mexicans. So no brown people may attend my speech. No, no, no. Uh-uh. Um, at least one employee booed when he said this, though, and that person deserves a medal. So shout <laughs> I love out to that. them. I can't imagine. I would love to be the lone person in a room booing Mitch McConnell. Like, the Holy Spirit moving through that person to boo them in that moment. God bless you, truly. You just, you'd feel stronger than you ever felt. Yes, it's the best. Truthfully, well, that's that's all we got on App Harvest for now. Again, I, I mean, it's such a disappointing situation, and I feel for the people that worked there that got screwed over by this, and the people that that they were friends with and families that invested in this company, thinking it could be the future. And I don't blame them for that. Yeah, because I don't either. The, yeah, the, like the way they sold this, it really could have been. And honestly, like, I don't. You could have done this and done it well. I don't know if it would have been financially successful, but if if you ran it 
as a good company that took care of their employees, that trained them properly, and that was respectful to them. I don't know if you could turn a profit or not, but like, there's ways of doing this where you could at least have tried. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It was a huge failure, uh, you know, from a moral standpoint, um, as far as like the leadership went, and and as far as investors went. I mean, I think there's definitely a due diligence piece lost in all of this. Um, who <laughs> was doing due diligence on this web guy? Like who was inspecting reports or, you know, like were they just literally throwing their money at the first smart sounding white guy they saw? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about this web guy. I mean, I just, maybe he was so disconnected from the day to day. He didn't know what was going on. I don't know. I don't want to excuse him, but I also don't want to put all the blame on him. Uh, but I mean, there's uh, again. Well, he was a CEO, so at the end of the day, the shoe falls with him. So you know, it's and there's no excuse for this, I guess. So I'm not trying to be easy on him. I just, I, I think like it just makes me really angry because it's it 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 had potential to be something, and it just has completely done the opposite and instilled so much bad will and anything like this ever happening again yeah yeah that's it definitely has put a whole industry on check in the region and people will definitely be more skeptical of this kind of thing moving forward which does suck um because As there they will should be, they should you're right yeah um and and i just but i think that you're 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 also right that there was just so much hope and that's that's the real like awful thing about this is the another yet another thing to lose hope in yeah it's it sucks too because uh, it just anyway we've talked about it enough yeah oh yeah let's um before we get to our interview let's talk again about the wheeling jamboree because we're trying to help these guys out uh last week we talked about this great institution it's the second oldest continually running country music radio show only behind the grand Ole opry founded in 1933 based out of wheeling west virginia uh, it's a great radio show and a great program. They're facing a budget shortfall of about $7,200. They're trying to raise that money to pay back operating fees. Uh, we don't want to see this this um, this thing end. It would be a travesty. And there's decades of history that's on the line right now. Uh, they have a GoFundMe that um, we're trying to help them raise some money for. So I would really strongly encourage you all to go check them out, check that out, and kick in a couple bucks if you got it, even five bucks. You know, they, they're about $5,000 away from that goal. So there's there's a bit of a hill to climb, but it's not insurmountable. Certainly not. And uh, yeah, this is just a it's, a, it's a cultural gem that we should protect. It's an easy, it's an easy five bucks for me. Easy five. Get it in. Uh, so let's talk about the interview that we got. I was unable to attend, but it sound I mean, I, I was regretful because it sounds really awesome. Oh, Pioneer is a 73-minute film that features three West Virginians and is narrated by lyricist and Canadian Screen Award-winning musician Kaya Cater. This film weaves narration with archival footage, poet, poetic vignettes, and dreamlike animation as Bridgeport, West Virginia native James Morley, Tim Hibbs of Queens, West Virginia, and Nellie Rose Gunderson of Thomas, West Virginia, humbly answer their calls to pioneer a way forward through immense personal 
hardship. This I really, really liked this film. I think you, you'll be able to tell that from the interview. I felt that it was really novel and, and original and unique. And the conversation with the two filmmakers, um, I think that they're just their love of the region just really shines through. And it, it takes this idea of a pioneer that has like all of these bad elements and then it kind of pulls through to like what is this what does a modern pioneer look like? Um and you kind of take these paths with a, a pastor um, during a time during COVID, uh, a, a metal worker, um, and a seamstress. It's just beautiful. Ah, chef's kiss, perfect. I love it. Well, it's a really interesting story. I'm really excited to listen to it and check it out, and you all should too. And see, I'm going to post a link to their website. There may be a screening near you, so if there is, you should go check it out. You can also request a screening. Ah, there you go. So request one. Do it right now. Stop what you're doing. Well, listen to the interview first and do it. Twenty years for the depression. Peter Thompson staked his claim in a little mountain town. Let's just go ahead and dive in. So, wow. Um, I have like a lot of questions for you guys. Um, I I'm was so moved. This is an hour and 13 minutes of like soul-rending emotion and gorgeous cinematic views and breathtaking animation and also like Vietnam-style flashbacks of the pandemic. So it's like putting you in the throes of it. I felt like I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. So before we get into it, um, and we'll do, I'll read an intro before we we get into this, so our folks will know what we're getting into. So, what what are is a little bit about y'all? We want to get to know you before we get to know the film. So, introduce yourselves. Yeah. Well, my name is Clara Lehman, and I uh, served as the director, producer, writer on the film. And this is Jonathan. Yep. My name is Jonathan Lecoque. Uh, I was a director with Clara and producer with Clara and Grace and did some cinematography and editing, kind of had my hands in a bunch of little things um, for the film. But yeah, I'm, we, you know, Clara was born and raised in Helvetia, West Virginia, uh, in Randolph County. It's where we live now. You know, it's this like quaint, beautiful town tucked in the mountains, you know, like many hollers that exist in Appalachia. You kind of like turn a corner and you're like, wow. This is an amazing little place. Um, and I was born in Chicago and then raised uh, in a west sub suburb of Chicago called Oak Park, Illinois. Yeah. And the two of us own a creative studio. It's called Coat of Arms. And we are about seven employees spread throughout the country and world, actually. Um, one of which is also in West Virginia, Grace Lawson, who's a producer on this film. And then um, Ryan Butterworth, Elena uh, Chudoba, David... Um, Right. Reyes and Paige, Peiching Lu are all over the country, but, but also in China. And what's really cool is all of them have touched this film in many different ways. For example, um, from producing to design direction to uh, illustration and animation. Um, and then, of course, going out and filming. So we've it's like that's our small core team, but we've had a, a worldwide team on this film. And that's kind of the model of our company. We basically make branded content or documentary, like branded documentaries, um, commercial work, things like that, in order to 
survive and financially cover all of our, our lives. And then we do this creative work on the side in order to feed our souls. I love that. That is so incredible that you're able to do that. Um, and that you have such a strong team. It's so evident in the film that your team was like all in on it. Um, quick question, Jonathan, as a transplant, like what was your experience coming into Appalachia and like really just becoming an Appalachian yourself? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll admit growing up, I had no idea what Appalachia was like. I probably couldn't even tell you where it was in some way. You know, you live in in your world, which is a bubble. And certainly in the city, you know, I was overwhelmed by things I could do at any moment and and with friends groups and sports and school and and you name it. Um, So it wasn't until I met Clara in college and fell in love with her and she dragged me here not kicking and streaming per se, but, you know, certainly uh, apprehensive and uncertain. And um, I have to say, I really fell in love with, with Helvetia first, but West Virginia and Appalachia after that, where, um, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And if I did know anything, it was likely the traditional tropes, you know, that, you know, we're all used to hearing now that I've, I've lived here for 12 years um, maybe more actually, because we 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 lived in Fairmont, West Virginia for about three years, mm-hmm. moved back to Chicago, and then we moved to Helvetia and have been here for 2010. Since 2010. Um, but yeah, so I, I I was pleasantly surprised, let's say, and 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 it has I'll say this, it has really changed me living here. Um, I'm a type A personality, I say yes a lot. And so I think living in the city allowed uh, you know, maybe nurtured that side in not the best way, if that makes sense, you know, like always busy, always running, no time to um, look around and be quiet and and think and process, you know, in the way that I think psychologically was and is important for me now. Um, and so I've, I have felt myself change in really thankful ways for me that, uh, you know, by living in, in West Virginia specifically. That's amazing. That's so great to hear. I'm really glad that the state welcomed you with open arms. Um, I I also have, Clara, I have a transplant of a husband who's from uh, the D.C. area. (laughs) And so we've been here about two years um, back in Appalachia. I grew up in the Asheville area. So, um, yeah, I love that that's a story that that now I can be like, Danny, see, there are more people like us. Totally. (laughs) Well, if I can, really quickly, I'll say, beyond just for my personally, like living, so in Helvetia, and this might not be all of West Virginia, of course, or all of Appalachia, I have learned how beautiful it is to be in a community of people who care about the community, but who are from different political, religious, you know, you name it, like worldviews even, where in the city, there's way more diversity, absolutely. And I miss some of that for sure sometimes. But you can kind of hide in a way like, you know, I I had my little, you know, group of liberal friends and we went to this, you know, place and played these sports in this certain way or whatever it might have been. And so, man, yeah, oddly, even though it's more crowded in an urban area like Chicago, there seems to be more boundaries or borders between communities and interests. And and here you're like, oh, another human that is artful. 
I don't care what your art is. I want to know you, you know, or another human that maybe just wants to like chat and sit on the front porch. It's like, there are things that you connect on that are not always within like a vertical that has to be exactly your interests. And I think that we both embrace that about West Virginia and want others to know that about it because we aren't narrow-minded, we're open and we're uh, really spectacular humans here too. And I think we always get, we get a little bit of a, a undercut. Yeah, I think sometimes. A little oversimplified. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've never heard it verbalized that way, but I, I have seen that and felt that as well, um, where, where you are in the city and because you're such a small fish in a huge pond, there are a bunch of other small fishes who are exactly like you that you can just get in that group. And, and yeah, here it's more like, is your neighbor like, you know, also a dog person or something that you can just like find other interests? I, I love that. So getting into the film, can you give us your kind of elevator synopsis for the film? Um, just just a little bit from your perspective, what it what it's about and what it means to you? Yeah, sure. So Old Pioneer is a documentary film and it reckons with and redefines what it means to be an American pioneer. And it does it through a modern perspective. And what we mean by that is we follow three West Virginians who are uh, creatively navigating hardship. The pandemic happens to be part of that because we filmed during that time, but they champion this exceptional pioneer spirit within that maybe is not always in a uh, what we would traditionally think of as a pioneer. Um, and I mean that in two, in two ways. A pioneer is either in our traditional sense, at least from what I had seen and why I wanted to study this was you're either a person that's conquering the frontier and settling in a place and you're resilient and you're bootstrapping and that's the pioneer of the past, right? And then there's this pioneer that has vision and is curing cancer or going to the moon or has a brain that is exceptional and perhaps some skills that not all of us have access to. Um, and so there was this like really odd conundrum where I was like, wait a minute, which pioneer is it? And why do I have an attraction to the pioneer? And but at, at the same time, what are the faults in pioneering? Right. What are what historically is the problem with pioneering? And what is the problem with pioneering of the future? And so I think that we are trying to redefine it and find a, a more balanced path through these three individuals who happen to be a seamstress, a blacksmith, and a hospital chaplain. And the reason why we chose those is they made sense for that old pioneer spirit to anchor us to like a story that could, could have that voice and yeah, that vibe. Th these were sort of like verticals or things people did that you'd bring in the wagon when you head out West. You know, you want some of these types of folks in the community that you're building. Yeah. And then we paired that with animations that you'll see are more the modern pioneer, like we have a scene in space. Um, and so there are things that we tried really elegantly to weave to show you that we're embracing both pioneers, but we're like tossing away the chains of like trying to be extractive and cruel to our neighbor and our, and our world and our planet. Yeah, I, that all rings so true in the film. Your 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 hope and aspiration for it is it's so evident. There's one other pioneer in the film that I feel like is worth talking about at this juncture. Um, and like this will not shock any of our longtime listeners. <laughs> 
because they know that this, like any time that there is this thing, I have to talk about it. Um, there's a banjo featured prominently in your film and a black woman, um, Kaya Cater. Is that how you say her last name? Okay. Thank you. Great. Um, is playing it. And the significance of that, like that brought me to tears, the significance of that moment with reference to the word pioneer it's so powerful because of what the banjo has brought us with regard to joy and community and life in the mountains and also what it has taken um, and and in the path of destruction, just like everything else in that old pioneer spirit. Um, so tell me about Kaya and tell me about what that moment in the film meant to you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Let, I'm going to let Jonathan go first. Yeah, I'll so chime in. I mean, Kaya Cater is an extraordinary musician and lyricist. And I, I have to say, so when we started making the film, we were following these three people. And as we were weaving their stories together, we kept feeling like there was something missing. And part of that was, again, this challenge of, of weaving history in the past with, you know, modernism, modern times, and the story that we're trying to tell. And so we started thinking about, like, who could have the ability to do that and work with us and who is Appalachian or connected to this place. And we had uh, worked with Kaya before. Um, we we had filmed the Appalachian Ensemble at Davis and Elkins College. And um, she was you know, one of these extraordinary musicians there that we were particularly taken with. You know, we love her as a person, but also as, a, as an artist. And so we reached out to her and then started working with her, uh, both in terms of, you know, Clara was writing the narration, but then seeing her thoughts, listening to her music. And that's where her song Poets Be Buried came into play, which is one of the ones that is performed in the in the film. Um, and there's so much meaning. And I, and I don't want to speak too, I don't know, specifically to it because it's her song, you know, but there is so much significance in that song. And it, it ended up being a incredibly moving and fun, frankly, moment to have her perform Poets Be Buried there. Um, and we also filmed it with a whole bunch of local West Virginia crew. We were at the highest point of West Virginia, Spruce Knob. And so all these things sort of coalesced to, to become this very meaningful thing for us. And I'm just so glad that it was for you, you know, like you sometimes you you in art, you know, whether it's sculpting or painting or movie making, you know, you work so hard to try and express something and you have no idea if literally anyone anywhere will kind of interpret it similarly. And it ultimately your art becomes others, right? Like this movie is something for you that it may not be for us. And that's, that's a beautiful part of it. But um, yeah, Kaya was and is a force and we're supremely lucky to have had the opportunity to have her as a, a partner in, in making the film. Yeah, she got to see a rough edit with the three uh, participants woven together. And we told her, like, listen, this is what we're trying aiming for. We want you to be the guide and the lyrical guide, not only just like a narrator talking head, like you're going to perform a bit. You're going to like actually have a little bit of almost like a theatrical presence. She comes onto the stage, quote unquote. Um, she um, chose to, she's the one that recommended her song, Poets Be Buried, for that sequence. Um, she said, I have the perfect song for this film. I promise you, like, I 
feel like it's just right for it. Um, and I think it was based on the lyrics and based on her, maybe not her personal relationship with the song, which was what Jonathan's talking about, because her personal relationship with that song is very different than what this film, how the film positions it. But she was like, it's it says the right things for what that moment is. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really interesting that you chose to say, I love the the third the fourth pioneer in this film and you paired her with the banjo and i think she would find that very lovely i mean she um has will be able to talk to you one day i'm sure but has this beautiful relationship with appalachian music and she's canadian grenadian uh came here to west virginia for college and studied appalachian music and she's um a spectacularly bright human being and um i think she would just i i I'm just so inspired by the way she has navigated and danced in a really kind way to um, express what this the sound is of the banjo, but also like reinvent it in yeah. her own way. Yeah, I was one thing I'll add, and I know we're we're talkers, so I apologize, but I think we we did talk early on, if you remember, right, about the banjo and just how it is in so many Appalachian films and music and, and, and it can, it can feel redundant in some ways. And ultimately Kaya's relationship with the banjo is very indicative of what we were trying to say with the film and the word pioneer. She has taken this history and sort of redefined the music and her relationship as an artist with the banjo in a way that allows us to move forward positively while not forgetting the past. And so I appreciate that onion layer that she brings to the film for sure. Yeah, that is so freaking beautiful. I love all of that. Um, I just, it really, she, she shines like she really does. She's so awesome. Um, and I do hope I get to meet her. Wow. Uh, kind of where to even step off from here. I mean, we, I, I kind of, you kind of go to talking about how you hired locally and you use local, you know, locations and stuff like that. A lot of people have in the past been interested in just like, what are the logistics of making a film in Appalachia? And is that a barrier to filmmakers who are trying to kind of elevate what's happening here, which is sometimes really beautiful, sometimes really painful, um, but oftentimes never heard. Yeah. What, if I can just say one quick thing, I think West Virginia's film scene, just like just about anything in West Virginia is like often forgotten. You know, it's like somebody from Los Angeles may have no idea that there's a strong, vibrant filmmaking community here. So I will say anybody wanting to do this kind of art can come to the Appalachian region and find incredibly talented people to help execute your artwork. So in our film in particular, we wanted to, you know, be inspired by local people, but also be careful in including not just local places, but local artists. And so we got to work with several folks locally. And um, I mean, I hope the film speaks for itself visually, but I hope that this can become a calling card in some ways for all of these talented, uh, you know, like cinematographers and lighting technicians and production assistants and producers and, and you name it. And um, musicians. And musicians, of course. So West Virginia, man, has such a vibrant art scene. And I hope that more people can kind of get to see it and learn it firsthand with their own 
artistic and even commercial work, you know? Yeah, I think there's a lot of access to, I think that maybe, and I'm going to speak for West Virginia because that's where I'm from and that's where this film takes place. But we did not have trouble getting access to some of these locations. We filmed in Green Bank, West Virginia, which is um, a zone where we have these amazing, enormous uh, telescopes listening to the stars and they let us film there. Um, we were able to go to Spruce Knob and um, God, in your- God in your knob and various places throughout West Virginia. And everyone in, in from a state park to a, uh, a an official federal agency seemed to be very willing to find a way for us to, to do this without hurting anything and being respectful uh, and seemed supportive. Um, so that has been really empowering. And I think that that doesn't happen in every state. There's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of, um, you know, who do you know and what and who's in your film and things like that. And I don't think that that's as there's not that snub that you might feel here. Um, now they're cautious and they're protective of our natural resources and things like that. But that's that's par for the course. And it's that that's the way it should be. Yeah. But I feel like we were very embraced. And in fact, I think West Virginia is beginning to embrace the film too. Now we're on a, a slow burn because we are a small independent film company um, that we have to find our outlet. Like we aren't a big distribution company. We don't have a big name producer in our film, but I've noticed that West Virginians and Appalachians are embracing the film when we get it out into the world. Absolutely. Yeah, we can talk nitty gritty on filmmaking as long as you want, but maybe we we leave it there for right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so last last thing, where where can people see your film, support your film, um, and follow your work? That's great. Yeah. So, uh, O Pioneer will be playing in Huntington, West Virginia, December seventh at seven p.m. at the Foundry Theater, um, and and it's playing all. It's going to be playing in Wilmington, North Carolina, in two weekends. It'll be in Pittsburgh next weekend. But opioneer.com lists. If you click on, I think it says theater. Um, you know, you you scroll down and it'll show you all the places we've played and are playing. And I would say, like Clara said, like we're independent. You know, there's no, we funded this entirely ourselves in making the film. Um, and it wasn't until just recently, actually, Country Roads Angel Network came in and invested in the marketing and promotion of the film, um, which is feels like such a lovely feather in the cap to have this local Angel Network kind of uh, champion the film. Yeah, with another us. example of like how the community is embracing us right. and literally putting their mouth, their money where their mouth is, For like sure. supporting uh, these stories. But I will say, because we're independent, I mean, and don't have a distributor, like if people want to see the film. Go to opioneer.com, let us know, and we'll work, uh, you know, with a local theater there on bringing it so that that community gets an opportunity to connect with the film as well. Yeah, we have a social media um, presence as well. If you go to Opioneer Film on Facebook or on Instagram as well. So you can look at that too. Awesome. Um, Any final things that you were burning, itching to say um, that we didn't get to cover? That's a great question. Let me think you for can, a second. You can cut out the pause. Yeah, I know. Pause. Exactly. <laughs> All of this. No, um, I'm sure there will be. You know, it's always like I'm going to be driving away in an hour and be like, ah, oh, I can't believe we didn't say that. Um, I'll say this. I, I'm really grateful that each of these participants and artists allowed us to follow them around. You know, there was never a question. Like, we 
went to Tim and Nellie and James and Kaya as well with these ideas. And, 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 and imagine somebody coming to you and be like, hey, we're making a film where we're trying to redefine what it means to be a pioneer. And we think you're a pioneer. Like their responses were all the same of, oh, I don't know that I'm a pioneer. Like, I don't know that I'm the right person. They were extremely humble. So humble. Yeah. And, and again, no question at all. And they were all partners in the making of the film. And so what you see on screen and connect with is equally theirs as it is ours. Yeah. It's super authentic. There's, I, I think that they gave a piece of themselves in this as all artists do. And that is a gift and it doesn't happen every time you make a movie or write a book or make music. Right. But they did that for us and for all of us to enjoy. And that's pretty spectacular. And I don't want to give away too much, but each of them go through some pretty heavy hardship. And at each of those moments, we gave them the choice. We said, Hey, let's, we should stop. This is, let's just wait. And all three of them were like, no, this needs to be in the film. This is how I want it to be in the film. Let's do this together. So thank thank you to them. Yeah, thank you to them. And also they gave us a gift throughout the whole process. Like we each felt like not only did we grow as artists, but together we like navigated a pretty epic time in history and we did it in such a fun way, right? We had a great time. We went out to like the wilderness and filmed fun sequences that were weird and odd, but they they just really made it um, enjoyable and and our mental health is better for it. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll say is the film is not a pandemic film. Like a lot of people, yes, the pandemic is in it, but a lot of people I think, you know, like us, it's like, we've lived this, do I wanna live through it again? But the film is really so much about hope and art and music and, and connection, you know? And so if you are a person longing for any of those things, we urge you to watch the film and have your own relationship with it. Yeah, I think also West Virginians are going to be really proud of the fact that literally we take this film across the country and people are like, you know, I want to visit West Virginia, like, or they'll be, they'll say something like, man, I kind of would think about moving there. This is amazing. And for a state that has a pretty negative stereotype going tied to it, uh, and for an area that is losing population, I'm just really proud of that. And I'm hopeful that more stories like this come out because we need some hope in order to like, see that we're powerful and meaningful people. Um, But also that our, our region is, is, diverse and interesting too. Yeah. Oh, so awesome. I couldn't agree more. I, I, the film, you go through a journey and at the end of it, it's totally worth the watch 110%. Um, thank you guys so, so much for such an amazing conversation. I, I honestly, you know, you never, you never know with, with, uh, with folks. And this was just so awesome. Um, thank you for, making this film for us. Um, I feel like it really is a gift to Appalachia. So um, thanks. Well, thanks for having interest in talking with it through us, through it with us, Callie. It's really nice of you. Truly. Thank you. It's part of who I am. Molding me as a little boy so I could be a better man. From the mountains and the farmlands, from the smokestack she has grown. This ain't just another paper town. It's the one that All right. Uh, let's talk about being gay and doing crimes. Let's do it. Yeah. 
Uh, turns out, under the radar this week, uh, for a brief period of time, I think uh, several months actually, it was technically illegal to be gay in city property of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Literally what? <laughs> like, L- Literally be gay to crimes. I mean, it, uh, first of all, this yeah. is fucking stupid. Again, uh, most things that are trying to regulate LGBTQ people out of existence in Tennessee are fucking stupid. In fact, all yeah. of them are fucking stupid. Um, Murfreesboro, just for people that don't know, in Rutherford County, which is southeast of Nashville, about 40 minutes down the road on 24 on a good day. Uh, it's just a, it's a larger kind of suburb. It's where Middle Tennessee State University is. So it's not in Appalachia, but it's adjacent enough that we're going to fucking talk about it. So uh, what happened is that uh, they passed an ordinance that effectively criminalized pride events last year and denied event permits to Borough Pride. That's the Murfreesboro uh, LGBTQ pride organization that was trying to um, do a pride event, I think a, a parade or something like that. Um, the ordinance passed was a, co- a community decency ordinance that defines sexual conduct as masturbation, sexual intercourse, physical contact with a person's closed, clothed or unclothed genitals, pubic area, buttocks, or if such a person be female, breast, and homosexuality. Just the concept. So not even gay sex. It was just homosexuality. Homosexuality, period. Like a, a, a sexual orientation so when, is sexual when conduct. It, when they wrote it, were they like, were they imagining that it was like, were they imagining homosexuality as anal sex? Like, what are they? I don't understand. Is that what they thought that it was? And they just didn't. They just didn't. like. Look, they always go to butt fucking no matter what. They do, I'm sure that they do. I mean. They don't even think about the fact that women can be gay. They're just like, right, they but fucking dudes, not for it. <laughs> you know that's true, though. Yeah, I'd have like, to, I'm not even joking. Get... I'm being 100% serious. <laughs> Straight to the butt. I just, this is wild. Like, how did nobody see it? At the time, like I just—I mean, I'm sure that the people involved with Pride did. I don't know how this didn't get more attention, but I just cannot imagine that. Like, you are so threatened by, you know, people dressing up in drag. Probably, they're like, "What can we do?" Well, guys, why don't we make it illegal to be gay? Great idea, Chad. Let's do it. And then they did. Yeah, this is a bad look for Murfreesboro. It truly is. And like they've had some bad looks in the past, but this one's just, it's another level of stupid, truly. Um, but just to be clear for our audience, make it clear homosexuality is not in and of itself a sexual <laughs> act or conduct. <laughs> it is merely a concept, really. I mean, it's a. Yeah, a, it's just. It's that feeling you get when you were a kid and you saw, I don't know. It's uh, Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Is that is that a male sex icon? I feel like I see a lot of dudes really liking him. Sure, why not? And there were some scenes Perfect. from that filmed in Nashville, so there you go. Again, it's like it's so stupid the way they look because they always go like homosexuality is butt fucking. Being straight is everything. It's love. It's marriage. It's paying the bills. It's bitching about your wife to your buddies at the bar. But yeah. homosexuality, butt fucking. Women, women can't be gay because being lesbian is hot. 
Yeah, that's it's a fetish. Being a lesbian is a fetish. It's not an actual thing. I'm just, girls aren't I'm, les like men think that they can they can yeah. like switch girls. They're like, no, she's not really a lesbian. I could I could be the one <laughs> that would make her. <laughs> yes, she's a boomerang. She's a boomerang. Nobody's a lesbian that's above the age of twenty five. <laughs> to them. I'm just telling you, I'm giving you a glimpse into the male mind of mm -hmm. some people and in the I way they think. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, That's the all. male psyche continues to baffle me. It's true. The male psyche in some instances like this can just go fuck itself. But fuck itself, yeah. if you will. hey <laughs> Um, so th th so they've changed this, by the way. Uh, thank you to the Borough Pride and the ACLU, which filed a lawsuit and won. The court order, the court issued an order, I think, pretty recently, uh, maybe within the last couple of weeks, that tells city officials they shall not enforce a code that includes homosexuality within the definition of sexual conduct, and that forced the city manager and county council or city council to update it and change it. In fact, I think it just literally removed the word homosexuality from that. So now it's just a regular decency ordinance. My, quest my question is, why did they need a lawsuit for the city to be like, oh, that's fucked up? Do you think that like, do you think that the cops were, were scratching their heads and they were like, hmm, how do we enforce this new law? Like, I'm not saying they were behind it, but like, did they have to consider how they were going to enforce that law? Or was everybody just like, this was a fuck up? I have no idea, but I'm assuming that they did. And it's probably like they saw a guy with an inseam that was too high. They just arrest him out of spec, I guess. Middle fingers, tips of your middle fingers. That's how we had to, <laughs> that's how far down our skirts had to go. If it's if it's to the knees, you, you're fine. If it's not, you're in the back of a cop car. I don't know. It's very strange. I, gotta, did, I really would love to hear a cop try to explain how they would enforce that. I think it would yeah. be genuinely hilarious. I don't know. It's kind of like porn. You know it when you see it. Um. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just for like, just for shits and giggles. <laughs> just as uh, like the asking cops the important things. Like, how would they do this? I don't know if he's, if he's got a man purse. If he goes into a, a stationary store and stays for longer than five minutes. If he goes to Ulta Beauty without his wife. Uh, that's how. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, how would you? I, I would hope that most cops would say we wouldn't. I would hope. Like, I just really, I just like genuinely want to believe that in America, just that like most people now don't believe that they should criminalize homosexuality. I would love to have that level of faith in our criminal justice system. I simply just do not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I'm sorry. Somebody help prove me otherwise. I said I want to believe it. I just, oh man, it's there's so much bad shit. I just want to start believing better. <laughs> Look, George Santos doesn't help the cause. George Santos, dude, that guy. It, I, I really cannot wait for the movie about his life because I just, I, it's gonna be. I hope it's a Netflix series, and I hope it's like Inventing Anna. Do you remember that 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 show about the girl who? basically tricked all of New York City into believing that she was a German heiress. I I think Her name, I remember it coming up on Netflix and I started watching it. It was very confusing. Yeah. Oh, God. It's so good. It's such a funny thing. She, like, basically just 
told people that she was a German heiress and they believed her. And good for her, honestly. It was wild. Yeah. I mean, she had she did a lot of crime, but she lived high on the hog for a long time. Um, and now she's out of prison. So, you know. I mean, like I don't know what crime she did. Um and I'm not mostly just money crimes. Okay. All she did was steal money from people. That's about it. You yeah. know, I mean it's that's bad if it comes from poor people or even right. struggling. But Jonathan Webb was able to lie and get $700 million for App Harvest, but this little And that's fish, legal. Like, yeah. Right. So I'm kind of team Anna at this point. <laughs> Martha Stewart can simply disclose some information that's called insider trading and get sentenced to the Alderson Broadus Women's Prison. Shout out to Philippi, West Virginia, I think. That's right. What up, Philippi? Um, anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to get into defending insider trading on this show at all. So let's no, just yeah. let's just put a pin in that. Let's park. Let's park the car, bud. Park that <laughs> car. All right, that's it. We we criminalize gays. Got rid of. <laughs> sent the tomatoes back to Mexico where they belong. Really solved a lot of problems this week. Yeah. And uh, I guess we'll just roll the dice on what Joe Manchin's going to say this week and get back to you next I'm week. I'm going to bet he's, um, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? He's going to dangle more in front of us. What would be he's a- going to dangle until after the new year. Oh, you're right. We're fucked until the new year. He's a dangler, him. He's a dangler. Well, you all keep dangling and we'll hang out next week. We'll be back and we'll talk more. We love you. Bye-bye. None of the views expressed on this show are reflective of the views of either Chuck or Callie's employers, and they never, ever will be. They are simply our opinions expressed on this show. That is it.